This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. It's been said that people run systems and the systems run their businesses. Thoughts and beliefs run people. It's all about why we do what we do, what we attribute importance to, what drives us, how we frame the decisions we make, how we feel, and how we think. So much of our success in life and in business is about what we believe in our hearts and what's inside our brain. In business, I call this the small biz brain. Small Biz America. The Brain. Our guest on this segment is the founder of the Alchemy Consulting Group, founded in 2003. Gordon Van Weckel has built and sold three companies in his career. He's the author of six books. He's worked with several international NGOs, developing micro-business programs in Central Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. He joins us on the line from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thanks, David. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Let's take it from the very top. You've bought and sold three companies, and I think it would be helpful for our audience to just sort of contextualize who you are and what you've done. Just tell the stories of these and, and what your takeaway was and what the outcome of the businesses were and you know whatever you think would be beneficial for the uh, small business audience. Yeah, actually, I didn't buy them. We, we built these from scratch. And I say we because in all cases, I had you know one or a couple of partners that did it with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the first one was a restaurant chain that we put together uh, back in the 70s. Uh, when we were all young enough to enjoy being in the restaurant business. <laughs> and we, we built a, a series of 16 restaurants. Some were company. We had started franchising. Uh, and then a big restaurant company came in and made us an offer we couldn't refuse and bought the entire chain. Terrific. Uh, That's a and, good exit. Yep. Well, it was, it was a great exit. And, you know, it, it was a wonderful business to be in. Uh, we had... Mm-hmm. 1800 employees across those restaurants and you know a lot of debt and all we probably made all the mistakes that you can make in starting a company in terms of being over leveraged and putting a lot more hope in the market than is justified but you know we did okay uh we developed a really nice concept that was way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at companies today like Panera, and they're now doing very successfully what we were doing 30 years ago. So I'm excited about that. After we sold that company, one of my partners in the company was from Denver, and I had been living in California. And he called me and he said, hey, I found a computer software company I think we ought to get involved in. And this was in the early 80s. And well, Bill Gates still hadn't uh, 
gotten to college or wasn't working in his garage yet. Uh, IBM wow. just introduced the very first personal computer, their very first personal computer. So, you know, my response was, Tom, what the heck do we know about the computer software business? And he says, nothing, but we know how to grow a company. And these software guys have developed some really good stuff. Let's take a look at it. So we wound up uh, buying into that business and taking them from a software team working in an office in Denver to retailing products across a dealership network of 90 plus dealers nationally. Uh, and then again, a, a large software company came in and wanted some of the technology that we had developed. And so they bought the company, uh, kept all the tech staff, got rid of all the rest of us. And <laughs> so, right, right. So, so we moved on. You know, let, me, let me interject. I, I want to interject a question about the exit. So in each of these cases, the outcome was very similar. You had a larger company coming in and buying a smaller company for whatever their reasons were. D- did you actively search for a buyer or did they find you? kind of a combination. Uh, You know, you get to a a point in the market where you've sustained some growth and proven a concept. People start to sniff around, for lack of a better term. Brokers start to look at what the possibilities are. And, you know, there are companies that are out there looking to acquire. When we sold the software company, you know, many of your listeners may remember or may be old enough to remember the wild and woolly days of microcomputers in the 80s. You know, at one point, there were several hundred hardware manufacturers. There was a big battle over CPM as an operating system. Eventually, Windows became prominent. You know, Apple was starting at that time and tried to proprietarily develop everything on their own. Uh, so there was just a lot of confusion and consolidation in the marketplace. So it wasn't unusual for us to get an offer. Uh, and the guy that had put the money into the company and was really the primary source behind us said, hey, you know, it's time. Let's let's take the money and run. Love it. What a great narrative um, and really helpful for us to understand that you understand the challenges facing business owners everywhere, uh, up and down the spectrum of size. And certainly the restaurant business is very challenging. On the other side of the spectrum is this technology. Uh, what did the technology do, by the way? We had developed a bill of materials processor. Uh, To my knowledge, we were the first one out there. So what we could do is receive inventory into a business and then take take that inventory out based on sales using menus for each product that the company sold. Okay. Okay. So it was inventory management uh, type of... It was inventory management. It integrated with accounting. Uh, in certain applications, we could even even integrate with a point of sale system, so that as the cashier rung up a sale, it would automatically deplete inventory for all of the constituent ingredients in that product. Brilliant. Yeah, probably at a time where there wasn't a lot of that around. All right. So back to my point is that you really understand the in, innards and out, outards of uh, of challenge the challenges that businesses, midsize and small businesses, are facing today. So I know you're. You're a fan of the Michael Porter School of Five Forces. Uh, talk to us about this. This is the first time I've heard of it. Maybe folks in our audience are, are as well unfamiliar. Michael Porter is a professor at the Harvard Business School and has written a number of books, but perhaps, or at least for me, his most compelling is what he calls the Five Forces. And he creates a, a an interesting case that says that this happens at the at the national level between countries. It happens at the local level with companies. And his contention is there are five forces that impact a company's profits. 
And of course, he simplifies it, you know, down to the most basic equation that all of us as business owners are concerned with, profit equals price minus cost. So anything that affects the price that you can sell your product or service for, or the cost of that product or service is going to impact your profit. Absolutely. So elegantly simplistic as we listen to that, but so many of us go down rabbit holes that are not serving this equation. Exactly right. And, and, and what Porter does, and, and again, I think brilliantly, I highly recommend his book, is he talks about five very basic forces. You know, one, of course, is direct competition. Okay. We all face that. Every business faces direct competitors. I can't think of a single business that is so far ahead of the curve that they have no competitors. And, and again, uh, here are five forces, but not every business is challenged by all five. Not every business category is challenged by all five. But I've never seen a business in, what, 14 years of consulting now that didn't have at least three of these that were affecting their business. So the first is direct competition. The second one is powerful suppliers. And here, a lot of times we think of the companies that we might buy our raw products from, but consider also the power, powerful suppliers of advertising. If a company is advertising online these days, that means that they're using Google AdWords or Facebook. And when they change their terms, it affects your cost of advertising. You may recall that just in the last 18 months, Google has gone from roughly 12 to 15 paid ads on the first page of search results to four. That whole right-hand column has disappeared. Mm -hmm. There's now four ads at the top of the page, and they're thinking about putting one more ad in the three-pack. We've seen some of those being tested in different niches. But the reality is they've gone from 12 to 15 ads to four. Well, what's the result of that? Cost of advertising goes up. So powerful suppliers can have a detrimental effect on profits. The third would be powerful buyers. These are companies that can negotiate or demand better pricing from you or demand increased services at the same price, which affects your profitability just as much. You know, a good example are those companies that try to break into selling to Walmart or Costco or Sam's Club. The rules that they have to follow and the hoops they have to jump through to get shelf space in those stores, sometimes you wonder why they're even there because the margin is so razor thin that you just have no room for error. But that's the impact that a powerful buyer can have. You want the added exposure, you run the added risk of complying with their terms. Yeah, this is very powerful, and I've, I've personally experienced it while running a bakery operation uh, and uh, thinking, you know, sort of on a quasi-emotional and branding pers uh, level and perspective that it would bolster our brand and, and exposure. But at the end of the day, it, it was not a successful engagement for precisely the reason you, you suggest here and Michael Porter suggests. Yeah, I, that's why I think his book is so compelling. The, the fourth of the, of the five forces is substitutes cheaper products that can appear to be a match to the uneducated consumer, but in reality are of inferior quality. Yeah. Uh, you know, we work with a lot of roofing contractors in our business. And one of the reasons that some of our clients lose transactions is someone else will come in with a shingle that might look to be of the same quality, but the uneducated consumer doesn't know the difference. Mm. And if they can save a couple thousand dollars on their job, in many cases, they will. Yeah. Uh, so we all deal with substitutions. Uh, there's very few of us that are in the product or even those of us that are in the service business that won't find somebody that's willing to race to the bottom in their pricing 
just to grab a piece of business. And then the fifth is just threat of entry. Most of us have a low barrier to entry, particularly true amongst small businesses, small local businesses. There's very few businesses that can really block out competitors because of the difficulty of getting in. Uh, you know, medical practices come to mind. You don't just decide to become a plastic surgeon and go open a clinic. Uh, you know, there's, there is a barrier to entry in some of those categories, but you know, you look at the uh, look at the legal profession. You know, 30 years ago, you could open a law practice and there was a lot of business. We've now graduated so many attorneys that it's very difficult to start an independent practice. You pretty much have to affiliate as an associate and maybe over time be able to hang your own shingle. Mm -hmm. But there's a relatively low barrier to entry or so many people coming into the business that that threat affects your profits as well. Okay, excellent. Michael Porter, what's the name of the book we should know about? Uh, he talks, he doesn't have one specifically called the five forces. He talks okay. about the five forces in several of his books. Excellent. If you okay. go to Michael Porter on Amazon, you'll see uh, Perfect. three or four of his books. Yes. Thanks for that. We're visiting with Gordon Van Weckel. Gordon, thank you for that. Brilliant way to look at things simplified in a world where it can get complex because of the stories we tell ourselves about brand, about exposure, about why are we not making money? I mean, all the questions an entrepreneur would ask. So this is serving our audience quite well. Your website, I'll mention it now, thealchemyconsultinggroup.com, just like it sounds, thealchemyconsultinggroup.com. Um, switching gears, I know you have an interest in the internet of things. You've been around technology. Uh, there's a censored I'll call it a sensor-based, these are your words, actually, sensor-based economy, which is a fascinating idea. And what does this mean to us as business owners from your experience? Well, you used the right term, Dave. The Internet of Things is a relatively new term that's catching on. It, it describes the, the introduction of sensors and networks in all phases of our life. Now, let me give some examples of that. The latest number I've read says that there's about 1.5 billion sensors in our economy today. Now, what's a sensor? A sensor is simply a measuring device. So a thermometer is a sensor, it measures temperature. Where are these sensors? Well, they're everywhere anymore. Uh, I was reading the other day about a European mattress company that has put a sensor in their mattress that will measure your sleep patterns. It can determine whether or not you have sleep apnea. It can measure the health of your sleep, the REM sleep, what happens to your blood pressure during sleep. And it can transmit that data from the sensor in your mattress to your primary care physician. So is this company in the mattress business or are they in the medical business, in the healthcare business? One of the things that sensors are going to do in the future is really transform how businesses see themselves. You know, there's a lot of controversy here in the States now about driverless automobiles. And, you know, one of the companies at the forefront of that is, is Tesla. The Tesla is full of sensors. And they're measuring everything around them so that that car can effectively guide itself. You know, we laugh about that. But the reality is that when we take a, f a flight from L.A. to New York, the pilot and co-pilot are actually actively engaged in running that plane about 40 minutes of the five-hour flight. Exactly. The rest of the time, sensors are running everything. So the Internet of Things is this burgeoning of sensors and networks to collect that data. 
I think I mentioned that there's a 1.5 billion with a B of those sensors today. It's predicted yes. that by the end of 2020, which is just two and a half years away, we're going to be seeing 20 billion sensors, an increase of about eight times. Now, what do these sensors tell us that can impact the local business? And how does that change how a local business might consider marketing themselves and attempting to overcome the five forces we talked about? If you think back to how we've been marketing for the last 25 or 30 years, certainly that long that I've been in business and well before that, our marketing was based on demographics. The smart business owner identified who their ideal prospects might be, what are the demographics of those ideal prospects? You know, they sell primarily to men or women. Are these people between 25 and 40 or 50 and older? Are they are their incomes over 50K? Are they between 30 and 50? You know, all of those kinds of things that we have used as a way to identify our, our target market and find a way to speak to that market more effectively. What we're seeing now as a result of all of these sensors is we now have the ability to track the behavior of buyers in real time. And think about what I just said. In real time, not casting a broad net over demographics. So here's the, here's the analogy that I like to use as I'm explaining this to groups as I'm speaking. Let's imagine you're at a stadium. You're at an NFL game surrounded by 80,000 of your closest friends. And you own a plumbing contracting company. And you do remodels as well as unclogged drains and that sort of thing. But you've got a really strong plumbing company there in that town. Well, that particular day in that 80,000 people that are in that stadium, there are 50 of those people who have a need for a plumber for one service or another, but they know they need a plumber. Can you tell who those people are? No, you can't. You certainly can't by looking at them without no. some kind of sensor. I'm guessing that's where you're going with this. That, that, that's exactly right. You have no way of knowing who those prospects are in that stadium who are looking for a plumbing contractor. But through the use of sensors, this new concept of the Internet of Things, we can now track the search behavior of people as they go online. Mm -hmm. We can keep track of the keywords they search, the websites they visit, the pages they visit on each of those websites, how long they spend on the website, how frequently they're doing those searches. So we know, particularly for products or services where people do spend some time doing their due diligence, they are researching, mm -hmm. we know who those people are. Now, we've been collecting that data, not we, but the companies that are in that business, the blue kais and the, the, the large data aggregators, and, and that includes Facebook and Google, by the way, but those large data aggregators have been collecting this data for a long time and selling it to big companies. The change that has happened in just the last six to eight months is algorithms have now been created that allow us to cost-effectively identify those people who are, we call them in market, that is they are searching for, they are those 50 people in that stadium of 80,000 searching for your particular product or service. So right now, our company is tracking 252 million US consumers. We've identified 2.6 email addresses, average per person, 
2.5 device IDs per person. So that would include a phone, a desktop, and a tablet. Sure. And seven, and we're tracking 75 million different behaviors each day. And then we use machine learning, which is a, a, a basic level of artificial intelligence, to drive this algorithm that sifts through all of these 75 million behaviors and identifies patterns. So go back to our plumber analogy at the football game. We now know that when someone starts typing in certain keywords and looking at certain websites, they're in the market for a plumbing contractor. Well, we can take that behavior, we can sort it by zip codes. So if ABC Plumbing is in, well, let's take my city, in Albuquerque, and there's roughly uh, 80 zip codes in the greater Albuquerque area, we can hone in on all of those people who are exhibiting that search behavior across those 80 zip codes, and then using the identity graph that we've developed by tracking these consumers across their email addresses and their devices, we can identify who those people are. Now, let me be very careful when I say who those people are so your listeners are not confused. We're not creating a list like InfoUSA where I give somebody a name, address, phone number, and email address. Okay, that's a profound distinction. Absolutely. Uh, and instead of that, what is happening? What we're doing is we're generating what's called a cryptogenic hash file. Now, I don't want to geek out too much, but a cryptogenic hash file is a sequence, an alphanumeric sequence of roughly 36 characters that is unique to each individual. When I go online and search, my behavior is being captured, and I have a hash file unique to me. Dave, when you go online, you might search the exact same websites, but your hash file is unique to you. So it protects the subject of that data from identity theft and these other sorts of things by virtue of the encryption. Do I have that right? Well, the encryption, it, it protects it at a superficial level. Okay. I can turn around and take that cryptogenic hash file and I can upload it to Facebook or Google or Instagram or a variety of marketing channels. And they know how to read that data and identify who that person is and their characteristics. Okay. So I can create a lookalike audience. Let's say I have 50 people here in Albuquerque looking for a plumbing contractor, I can upload those 50 hash files and then instruct Facebook that all of the ads for our client, ABC Plumbing, are only focused on those 50 people. Or we can create a lookalike audience of people that have similar behaviors or similar demographics and focus on them as well. We can and do still the there's a spectrum in that example, Gordon, because you've got 50 of them that with slight variations in behaviors that... Well, I, the way I visualize what you're saying, and check me if I'm right, is that it's exponential almost in its, in its ability to identify lookalike behaviors, right? That's exactly right. Right. Wow. This is powerful. Now, when we're using Facebook to place targeted advertising like we do, is this the technology that's employed or is this unique to the work that you're doing when, if a business were to hire you? Well, right now it's pretty unique. To the best of my knowledge, there's about 15 agencies like ours across the country okay. that have accessed this algorithm and, and are taking the data, permeating it through this algorithm, and then applying it to local businesses. Wow. Now, here's some of the ramifications for the local business. Instead of spending $1,000 a month 
advertising to the 80,000 people in the stadium, you can spend that money advertising to that focused group of people who are actually searching for you and a lookalike audience. And very quickly, you're going to see that your ad spend will start to ramp down. The effectiveness of those ads is going to go up because you're talking specifically to people who have an interest in talking with you. Mm-hmm. You have the ability to present your ad more frequently within that budget. Sure. Because you're targeting a smaller audience. Sure. You remember people go through this decision making process as they're looking for a vendor. Basically, what people go to the internet for is they're looking for somebody they can trust. Yeah. You know, your, your, your website isn't necessarily an electronic billboard or brochure or menu. It should be an instrument that engenders trust on the part of people who are looking at, at it, looking for, considering your product or service. Right, exactly. It's not the engine of the other aspects of a transaction. It's really just about the emotional connection you can make with an audience. And I know that the content marketing is an extension of that idea, the work that I do. I have a question related to the work I do and, and others who are in what I'll call a non-localized business model. Mm-hmm. Um, is this technique, I'll call it a technique for lack of better, that you're employing uh, with a, uh, a cryptogenic hashtag, you know, all of that. This idea, can it be applied to any business or is it really better for a, what I'll call a localized type of business, like a roofing contractor, for example? It is best for businesses that the consumer goes through a decision-making process that lasts a little bit of time. Mm. I would say if people don't spend a minimum of two weeks considering your product or service and looking for a vendor, this is probably not the best strategy for you. Okay. So the length of time is important. Why? Why is that important? Because it gives us an opportunity to track a consistent behavior. Okay. So the behavior over time has value. If it's a if it's a quick, impulsive type of purchase, not so applicable. Now, that seems to speak to my business. If I told you that I'm looking for podcasters that have existing inventory that are looking to grow their audiences and engage with them more actively and more readily and return an ROI, they're probably going to spend some time looking for ways to do that. Is that a good transposition of what you're doing? I, I think it could be. Uh, what we would want to do is investigate the keywords that people might search. Also, let me remind your audience that we're not limited to just local business. We can set up regional and national campaigns using this program, using this strategy. It's just instead of 80 zip codes, it might be 800. Uh, Right. Or or even 80 spread across a larger regional, uh, you know, geographic uh, region, maybe or maybe not. You know, we've had people ask us, well, I only want to work in this part of my city. Can we just do that? And what we have found is that the volume of people in that smaller sub-region at any given time may or may not justify the cost. I mean, let's talk about what this program would cost a business owner. Sure. Typically, the data buy is going to be in the $3,000 to $3,500 a month range. There's a little bit of variable there. A regional or a national campaign is going to be at the upper end of that. A strictly local is going to be at the lower end. Then you've got ad spend on top of it. And we suggest starting with an ad budget, depending upon how many channels you want to go into, of anywhere between $750 and $1,500 a month. So let's take the upper end of that. Let's say you're spending $3,500 for your data and $1,500 for your ad spend. That's five grand a month. That's $60,000 a year. So what kind of business do you need to do to recoup a $60,000 investment 
or really in, in another way to look at it, a $36,000 investment, because you're probably already spending money on advertising. We're just going to make that more focused and more effective for you. We're going to increase that ROI because we're targeting people who are in the market for your services. Now, here's another interesting facet of this that we're starting to see happen. You know, remember, this has only been available for about eight months. But as we track through with our clients and we identify people who complete their transaction, we can go back and enter their information and help our algorithm get smarter over time. Yes, because this is converted behavior. This is converted sales behavior, which absolutely is a part of the equation. And I can see where we don't almost create a focused data point in a certain way to anchor things, right? Yeah, I think that's a good way, good way to phrase it. Absolutely. All right. All right. This is fascinating. Good answer on the 60,000. What's your recommendation? And this may be, you know, industry dependent. What percentage does $60,000 a year represent in your example? But I was thinking about top line revenue initially. Most of the companies that should consider this strategy are doing a minimum of two and a half million dollars a year. But more important, I look at the transaction size. You could do two and a half million dollars of hundred dollar sweaters, and I don't think this program would help you. But if you're doing two and a half million dollars of fifteen thousand dollar bathroom remodels, or twelve thousand dollar mommy makeovers, or ten thousand dollar implant dentistry work, now it begins to pay off because it doesn't take a lot of clients to quickly recoup that monthly investment. Understood. So look at the, yeah, no, that was beautiful. So the transaction size is really the key here. Not so much the top line revenues over a year or some period. That. And the other thing that I encourage our clients to look at as we evaluate this is what's the lifetime value of that customer or patient? You know, a roofing contractor probably only does one roof every few years. Exactly. It's very, Uh, it's it's an in and out kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But a dentist realistically is going to see that patient for three to five years, assuming the hygienist doesn't get them upset. So you've got a, you've got a longer, you've got a more valuable lifetime of that client customer patient. Okay. That's good. Uh, yeah, so, the, yeah. so those are criteria we look at. That's great. Yeah, it's great. Gordon Van Weckel is our guest of the alchemy consulting for more information about this system that uh, Gordon is employing for businesses uh, across the world. Well, certainly across the uh, North America, if not the world right now, we're only available in the United States. Okay. So uh, it's give, US give, give, give us a year and we'll be in Canada and probably right. in Western Europe. Well, so. your, your history, if history repeats itself, I think that is absolutely true. As we wind the corner, on this segment together, and this has been fascinating and really eye-opening for a lot of us. Let's talk a little bit about this other subject I know you like to think about, and that's people-based marketing, otherwise known as market marketing. So how does this work? What is it? And who is it for? Well, people-based marketing is really what we've been talking about. People-based marketing and those who are in market are kind of synonyms for the same program. I use the term people-based marketing because it's easier to identify with in terms like in-market or cryptogenic hash. So people-based marketing is what we've been talking about. Now, just in the, I know we've got to finish up here, so let me introduce one other exciting development in just the last month. And that's what we call our site visitor program. The in-market program tracks the behavior of everyone in the marketplace, the 80 zip codes that we've been using as our example. But that's a more expensive program. And again, uh, a lot of companies may not be able to justify that expense. We also now have the ability using our smart pixel 
to put that pixel on a local businesses or any businesses website and gather the same quality of data for people that visit that site. Mm. We, we call that program site visitor. It doesn't take into consideration anyone other than people that visit your company website, but will generate the same level of information, the cryptogenic hash file using our uh, identity graph. We can track how long they're on your site, what pages they visit, and then we can give you that every week in, in the hash file, and you can turn around and market to them, Facebook, AdWords, uh, we're now very close to the point where 50 to 60% of the time we'll be able to tell you who that person is and you'll have their email address, maybe their physical address and their phone number. I would expect that by the end of the year, as we have our identity graph continuing to perfect itself, we'll be up to 70, 75% of the time we can tell you who those people are. Again, this is extremely powerful. You know people are coming to your website. You know, if you've got uh, analytics installed on your site, as you should have, mm -hmm. then you're going to know how many visitors you have. But other than knowing the number of visitors, what good is that? Well, what if you actually knew who those visitors were and you could turn right around and market to them? Now, the objection that I get from people is, well, that's just retargeting. I can do that without you. And you can. You know, Google and Facebook both offer retargeting pixels. But here's some essential differences that I think are important to a business owner. They own the pixel. When we put our smart pixel on your website, you own it. You own the data. You know who those people are. The Google and the Facebook pixels normally expire in two to four weeks our pixel is perpetual. It does not expire. When you that, have a... Yeah, yeah, no, no. Just a pause to acknowledge all of that. So it's profoundly different. In terms profoundly of different. Now, when Google and Facebook use their pixel, you can only retarget on that platform. The Facebook pixel doesn't cross over to any other platform. With our pixel, you can market anywhere you want because you own the data. Okay, so what's required is a landing page or a website where the pixel can be installed. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and the pixel is simple. It's just a piece of HTML code. You insert it before the body tag on your website, on every okay. page of your website. Okay. You know, we can do that for someone. We just need access to the dashboard of their site. Sure. Uh, or your webmaster can do it. That's really sure. easy. But that program is much more cost effective. You're looking at 650 to $850 a month for that program. And then, of course, your ad spend on top of it. Uh, here again, if a company has never done any kind of online advertising, this may be a leap beyond which they want to take. We can talk with them individually about it. Right, that. right. When you consult with folks, you can sort out what's important for them, look at their business contextually you know, amidst all these possibilities that you can serve them with. Yeah. Um, boy, so powerful, uh, Gordon Van Weckel. When we're talking about people-based or it's really, it's a form of uh, retargeting, as you say, with attributes that are really beyond what you would get if you did this with a Google or a Facebook type of mechanism. Absolutely. You know, okay. here, here's the quick way to summarize it, because I know we're about out of time. Yeah. In market allows us to capture everybody whose search behavior across the internet in your market area is a potential prospect for your business. Okay. Site, site visitor mm -hmm. uses the same pixel. It captures the same data, but only for those people that are 
visiting your website. So this is a way to really measure the efficacy of your own website today as a static, well, not so static, but as a isolated element. It doesn't go out into market. It just says, oh, what I'm doing on my website seems to be attracting who I want or not. And therefore, you can make changes, watch this data over real time and see if you're improving the quality of the visitors to your site. Well, absolutely. There's, you know, you hit on a really important consideration that's downstream a little bit from identifying the person. It gives you the opportunity as you begin to interact with more of these visitors to go back in and, and hone your website to make sure that your content really speaks to the conversation in the minds of your prospects, yeah. that it's really benefit focused and not feature focused. Yeah, you can really listen to your market in a very granular way and in a data driven way, data science. Gordon Van Weckel, it's the Alchemy Consulting Group.com. Gordon, such valuable information. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, David. Thanks for joining us on our journey into the small biz brain. Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes and please do give us a review there. You can contact me at podcastandradio.com. I'm David Wolf. We'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.